0: whether it's the Bible on your app or the Bible in your lap, we're going to go to the Old Testament book of Jonah. No shade, no shame if you need to look at the table of contents to find Jonah. It's in the, the, the fourth and the final quarter of the Old Testament. And here's uh, there's a lot of uh, churchy propaganda out there about the, the, the book of Jonah, about the story of of Jonah and uh, I think that we missed the the main message if we're not careful. It's like what is the book of Jonah all about? Is it about a great big whale? No. Is it about a great and famous prophet? No. Is it about a greatly evil city? No. I love what, the way that one pastor put it. He said it's a fishy tale about a faithful God. So Jonah is all about God. A great God, an amazing God showing amazing grace to amazing sinners. And just here's what I want to do. I just want to give you a way of thinking about what Jonah, what's going on in Jonah? It's a God who relentlessly pursues a rebellious people through a reluctant prophet. And so the way that the, the really the story of Jonah is structured is you have Jonah chapter 1, God speaks to Jonah. And we looked at that a couple weeks ago. Then you have chapter 2 and Jonah speaks to God that was last week. This week, it's God speaks through Jonah. And here in a couple weeks when we close out the series, we're going to see Jonah's going to speak to God again. So there's this conversation and and Jonah did not get off to a hot start. He, He basically hung up the phone. He ended the text message. He's like, I'm not talking to you, God. I'm going to not Nineveh. And that was what happened the first time that God spoke to Jonah. He called and commissioned Jonah. He said, arise and go to Nineveh. And just to catch you up, if you don't know anything about Nineveh, these were the bad guys. These were the bad girls. These were a group of vicious and violent people who Jonah and Israel loved to hate. And no coincidence, they are located in modern-day Iraq. So we're dealing with the ancestors of Al-Qaeda. We're dealing with the ancestors of ISIS, the ancestors of the Taliban. And so understandably, Jonah's reluctant. And so what does he do? He boards a ship And I love the way that the Jesus Storybook Children's Bible puts it. It says, Jonah comes up with a not good plan, and he goes to not Nineveh. That pretty well summarizes what happened. And so uh, as he is on board the ship going in the opposite direction, God sends a storm. Jonah steps forward and says, hey, I am to blame. He gets thrown overboard, and he starts plunging to the depths. And just when you think he's dead, just when you think he's done, somewhere down there he gets swallowed by a great fish. Next, in chapter 2, which we saw last week, Jonah speaks to God from the depths of his distress, and he cries out from the stomach of this fish, and God hears his prayer. And with a word, he commands the fish to spit him out. And what we saw last week is that death turns into deliverance as we humbly turn to Jesus. Basically, the fish was God's version of an Uber That was picking Jonah up, restoring him to himself, and getting him back on mission. And this brings us to chapter three. And really, the whole idea today it's this God restores and recommissions all who return to him. So let's hear what this is about. Verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Aren't you grateful for second chances? You know, A lot of times what we'll think is that, would God ever welcome me back? We run from God and we wonder, will God still want me? Will God still welcome me? And the answer to that question is emphatically yes. You see, here's the goodness of God is that he's slow to punish and he's quick to pardon. And what's interesting about this point in Jonah is if you just put yourself in the story and animate this scene a little bit in your mind he has just been puked up by a fish. It's one thing for you to throw up. It's another thing for you to be thrown up. That's a doubly worse day. But after acting awful, he now looks and smells awful. He has nothing, and yet somehow God still wants him. Another example of this is in Luke chapter 15. And we'll have these a couple of references here on the screen just for you to follow along. But it's basically, it's the story of the prodigal son. And here's what's interesting. Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York. He says that the story of Jonah was the inspiration for the story of the prodigal son. And that he actually had the story of Jonah in mind whenever he was in a room full of Jonah's, people who claimed to love God but didn't love people, whenever he told this story. And let me just kind of uh, explain what, what the connections are. Uh, we actually taught uh, this this story last fall. If you want to go on our website, you can get a broader explanation and even more teaching on this chapter of scripture. It's, it's, it's rich and it's helpful. But the, basically, the basic plot is this. A sinful and a selfish and a stupid son rejects his loving father. It's like, who does that? Well, Jonah did that. Jonah rejected the word of God to go to Nineveh. The son then runs away from home and ruins his life, much like Jonah who sailed for Tarshish and was thrown overboard. While on the run, he hits rock bottom, much like Jonah who sank to the depths of the sea. And in the depths of his rebellion, covered in mud, surrounded by pigs, the prodigal son, he comes to his senses, much like Jonah in the belly of the fish." So picture this: the prodigal son, he's looking awful, he's smelling awful, he has acted awful, he has nothing to his name. And what happens? It's that same phrase that we see, arise and go. It shows up in the in the story. And so the prodigal son arises and he goes home on the off chance that his father will have mercy and not restore him as a servant, but or as a son, but restore him and and let him pay the father back as a lowly household servant. And so, in a shocking turn of events. He's not just tolerated as a servant, he's restored as a son. Let me show this to you, Luke 15, 20. So he, the prodigal son, got up and went to his father. And here's what I want to tell you about this. You need to get up and go to your father. Stop making excuses. Stop thinking of all the reasons why God is not the solution to the greatest problem that you face. The prodigal son, he came to his senses. Jonah came to his senses. The only way that we can come to our senses is if we will run to, not from, our heavenly Father. But while he was still a long way off, his Father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his Son. So the Son ran from the Father, but when he returned, the Father ran to the Son. Talk about grace. He threw his arms around him and kissed him. And he, uh, but, but the Father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. So here's what I want you to see. This is one of the most vivid descriptions of relational restoration in the entire Bible. And Jonah would be a close counterpart. But I would say one of the reasons why you don't turn to God is because you think that God has turned away from you. And you think that he, he, he wouldn't ever want you again, he wouldn't ever welcome you again. And again, is that true? No, because who does God want? God God wants Jonah, God wants the prodigal son, God wants you, God wants me. And here's what I wanted to do right here. I wanted to just show you from Jonah chapter 2 verse 1 and the prodigal son. I wanted to show you two types of restoration because we're talking about restoration today. And if you think about restoration, basically what restoration is, it's it's kind of a surgical term whenever like a bone is broken or a body part is broken and you come in and you you bring it to a doctor who can help you get it fixed. Something is broken and busted, and it needs to be repaired. That's what God does with us. There's two types of restoration that you need to know about and that we're going to talk about. The first is daily restoration. The second is dramatic restoration. So what is daily restoration? Well, daily restoration is the type of restoration that all of us need. Uh, Toward the beginning of the pandemic, this was in 2020, I was walking around... Asheville, where we moved here from to, to start Coastway Church, I was walking around Asheville with my daughter Eleanor. We were having a daddy-daughter date, and we uh, were basically walking by this church, and outside it was a beautiful green space. They had a cross uh, that was de- well-decorated, and it was just a calming sight. And so what we did is we went up to that cross, and Eleanor, she wanted to get her picture taken by it. And uh, basically, before after we took the picture. We were walking away from the cross, and she said, Daddy, Daddy, hang on. I want to say bye to the cross. And she went to the cross, and she kissed the cross. And then she walked away, and she said, Daddy, here's what the cross is about. Jesus took our boo-boos, and he made us better. Like, amen, the, the gospel according to a three-year-old. Can it get any more clear than that? But here's the thing. Eleanor left the cross. That was cute for her. It's catastrophic for you. You never leave the cross. The way you start the Christian life is the way you sustain the Christian life. Much like a fire will die without being stoked, faith will suffer without returning to its source. You need 1 Corinthians 2.2. I would encourage you to write this down and memorize this verse. When I was a dumb, stupid teenager who thought I knew everything but actually knew nothing, my dad told me about this verse. And it was like pearls before pigs, if we're being honest. He told me about this verse. And basically, it's Paul among a bunch of Jonas, among a bunch of a prodigal sons among a bunch of rebels who are resisting and running from God in the Corinthian church. It's basically Christians gone wild. Like That's, that's what Corinth was. And so he's, Paul's writing to this church and he says, for I resolved while I was with you to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, here's, what, here's the lie that we believe is that we have to take a master class that we have to build a youtube empire that we have to go through all these courses and know all these concepts before we can come to a life altering encounter with the living resurrected god you need to know one thing christ crucified for sinners that jesus covered your debt he canceled your debt he took your debt and Whenever you look at the cross and you say, Jesus died because of me, Jesus died instead of me, and by faith that somehow counts for me, that's what you need to know. That's the one and only thing that you need to know, that your family needs to know, that the grand strand needs to know, and that's enough to restore you every single day to God and to other people, amen? Personally and practically, Here's what daily restoration looks like. How do I do that? Here, start start with this: sing songs. Sing bloody songs. And here's what I mean by that. If you're new to Christianity, you're like, that's weird. Well, we're not masochists, okay? We're not not like cannibals. It's not like this crazy weird thing. It's really simple. Is for for you to be pardoned, somebody's got to be punished. And so Jesus was punished so you could be pardoned. His blood was shed so you could be washed. And so sing bloody songs. Sing nothing but the blood. Sing Lamb of God in my place. His blood poured out, my sins erased. Sing hallelujah for the cross. So you sing songs that remind you of the cross. You receive sermons that start with done, not do. You know what we call those do sermons around Coastway? We call those do-do sermons because that's what they are. If it starts with your power, that's not a good sermon. If you can do the sermon... Without Jesus, I'll tell you this much, I preached, they preached a bad sermon. Because you can't do the Christian life without the God of the Christian life. It starts with done, not with do. You receive sermons that start there. And then you memorize scripture, man. You, you hide God's word in your heart. Here's a great one. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 2, two gave you that one. Here's another one, 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ suffered for sins once for all, That means he suffered for your past sins, your present sins, your future sins. All of it, paid in full, covered, to bring us back to God, to restore us to God. You get those in your heart, and what you're doing is you're being restored by the gospel. And also, you need to surround yourself with people who will multiply and who will magnify the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how you get restored by the gospel each and every day. I love what Martin Luther said, to progress is always to begin again. And where do we begin? We begin again at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, where we kiss the feet of mercy, we lay down every burden, we wear forgiveness like a crown. I'll tell you, what am I most proud of? What will I boast in Galatians 6? Only in the cross of Jesus Christ. Only And Jesus crucified for sinners of whom I am the worst. The second type of restoration that you need to know about, you need to know about daily restoration. That's for all of us. But some of you, some of us, we need dramatic restoration. What's dramatic restoration? Well, like Jonah, like the prodigal son, maybe you did something very sinful, very stupid, and very selfish. And you got hurt, they got hurt, and there was a great loss involved. How does God restore you? Well, it's the same way that he restores the prodigal son. It's the same way that he restores Jonah. And it's not complicated. It's with the healing power of his word. That's how he dramatically restores you. He speaks words of grace. He speaks words of truth. He speaks words of restoration, of forgiveness over your Life And what you do is is you put on those noise-canceling headphones that push out the lies of the devil, of the culture, and you amp up the volume on the word that the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart in the gospel. So I want you to notice how verse 2 starts with God saying, so he's speaking words of healing and restoration right here. God says this, arise and go all right, so what's going on right there? You would kind of just move on, but if we do that, we're going to make a mistake. It's interesting how uh, the first words after failure relationally are usually words of condemnation, right? But the first words that Jonah hears, for all we can tell, this is the first time that God has directly talked to Jonah since he ran, resisted, and rebelled. That's interesting. But what what are the words that, that Jonah hears after he blew it? It's not words of condemnation. It's actually words of restoration. Word of affirmation. What's this about? Well, this is God speaking words of purpose over Jonah's life. When he says, arise and go, he's saying, I'm not done with you. I still want to use you. I forgive you. I've not left you. And one of my favorite stories that illustrates this is something that happened in the testing room of Thomas Edison whenever he was pioneering electricity in the light bulb. So he had all of his assistants gathered around him, and he had you know, high-ranking assistants, low-ranking assistants, and basically what they were doing is they were pouring all this energy and effort into perfecting a light bulb that would produce electricity. And so they put in all this effort, and then they get the prototype. They get the bulb, and Edison takes that bulb that they just worked night and day, blood, sweat, and tears into, and he hands it to one of his lowest-ranking assistants. And he says, take this up to the testing room. And so that assistant gets the light bulb and turns and trips, drops the bulb, shatters in the floor. And so you would think in this moment, what happens? You know, well, well Edison's going to pin him to the mat, right? Here's what he does. This is powerful. This is the gospel. He, he looks at the rest of his team and he says, let's make another one. Let's make another one. And after they do, after they spend all these hours getting back to that prototype, here's what he does. He goes to that same low-ranking assistant, he hands him the light bulb, and he says, take this up to the testing room. Did you know that God wants to hand you the light bulb again? Did you know that if you're not dead, God's not done, and he still wants to work through you? Take a look at verse 2b. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. It's interesting, the first thing God does after he restores Jonah is he recommissions Jonah. Get ready for it. In other words, he sends him right back out onto the mission field. You know, Jonah, he's like the Peter of the Old Testament. Here's why. It's because Peter ran from God. Peter denied God. He didn't didn't want to be identified with God. But after Jesus appeared in resurrected form, having conquered sin, death, Satan, hell, and the grave, he comes to Peter, and he pulls Peter close on the seashore, on a beach somewhere, and he walks with. He goes on a walk with Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. He says, then feed my sheep. He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And then he starts weeping because he denied him three times. He's being restored three times. Then feed my sheep. What was Jesus doing? He was saying, I've restored you. I've reconciled you. Now, get back out there on mission. Here's the thing about second chances. Soon after God takes you back to himself, he takes you back to the last place that you told him no. What is that thing for you? What has God told you to do that you don't want to do? And here's the goodness and the greatness of God. God will never give up on calling you up. I was meeting with one of our commission members this week, and said some things, just, hey, I just want to be honest about this struggle that I'm having. It's like, I'm struggling to give. I'm, str- I'm struggling to invest financially in the mission of God. And, you know, part of it is me, I'm, I'm controlling. Part of it is I'm just afraid. But here's, here's what I want to say. I'm ready to trust God with my finances. And she gave. And it's beautiful. But what it is, is it's a picture of getting back on mission, knowing that there's restoration. And here's here's what we need to recognize. It's that God won't restore what you refuse to release. I'll say it again. It's that important. God won't restore what you refuse to release. If it's in your hand, he can do nothing with it. But if you take it out of your hand and you put it in his hand, he can reach the world with it. Uh, And I just want to go ahead and you know, I think there's some sea spray here for all of us. For example, are you refusing to trust wholly and solely in Jesus Christ for salvation? Are you refusing to be publicly baptized by immersion and after conversion according to the biblical pattern? Are you refusing to speak up about your faith to your friends, your relatives, your acquaintances, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates? Are you refusing to release control of your comfort, to release control of your calendar, so that Jesus' priorities will actually be your priorities, not just intellectually, but uh, in a way that is demonstrable, observable? Are you refusing to sacrificially pursue your spouse? Are you refusing to forgive that person who injured you who wronged you, who took something from you? Are you refusing to boundary off that toxic relationship that takes you to hell every time you get around them? Are you refusing to accept that burden that God has seen fit to allow? Are you refusing to admit that you are an emotionally immature person and it's dragging everyone around you down and you need to go to counseling? and you need to humble yourself, and you need to get outside of yourself to know yourself to untangle some of those knots that are driving other people up the wall. Are you refusing to spend time in prayer in God's Word? Are you refusing to bring your addiction to the screen, to the sexual fantasy, to some substance into the light, and humbly seek help? Here's the truth. You can't be restored by God if you refuse to bring what's broken in you before God. Uh, you may have heard this before, but if you, if you take a frog, okay? Not that anybody's done this this week, but if you take a frog and you put it in a pot of water, and it's like lukewarm water, and then you start turning up the heat on the water, and it starts getting hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter, it eventually gets to the point of boiling. Well, here's what the frog will do. The frog will just get so accustomed to the environment that it won't even jump out and will end up boiling to death. It's like, how do you know that? Well, I was raised in the mountains of western North Carolina. That's how I know that. I know all my Conway people understand. I don't even have to explain that one to you. Here's the point. The slow boil of refusing God ends in devastation. The longer you sit in it, the harder it is to see it. I just want to speak some truth to your heart right now. You can go your own way, and end up boiled, or you can go God's way, and you can end up better. The good news is this. God is always, always, always trying to get our attention, and even when he's not directly speaking, he's still actively pursuing, and I want to show you how. There's two ways that God gets our attention. It's through his words and through his works. We see both in Jonah's life, and we see both in your life. What was this like for Jonah? Well, God's word comes, arise and go to Nineveh. And Jonah resists and runs and rebels. But then God's not done. God moves from words to works. He sends the storm. He sends the fish. And after ignoring the word, Jonah is brought to attention by the works. And he finally pays attention. Now, what is this like for us? How does this How does this bridge between the Old Testament to to our modern moment? Here it is. God's word has come to you, loved one. Repent and believe. Love God. Love people. Forgive. Speak the truth in love. Go and make disciples. And these works come, but if you... These words come and you ignore it, and then what he does is he allows works to come. And he allows you to see the disintegrating effects of your rebellion. So what happens is debt happens. Divorce happens. Despair happens. Depression happens. Some disease that's the result of your own foolishness, it happens. And the question is, when this this happens, are you going to be like Jonah who gets puked out of the whale and runs again? Or are you going to see that God loves me enough to pursue me if If I won't listen to his word, he's coming after me with his works. Will you pay attention? I love what Tim Keller said. God has created the world so that sin and selfishness have natural disintegrative consequences. If you give yourself to sin, you will give yourself to more suffering. Now understand, if you repent of sin, that doesn't mean that you'll stop suffering. It doesn't mean you get a hall pass on pain. What it means is that the natural consequences that the God of creation has enmeshed into the fabric of creation for those who run from him will multiply to you. And it's like, I did this to myself. Wake up. What do we do? Well, we do what Jonah did. We raise the white flag of repentance and take a look at verse three. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And I don't know about you, but I just want to shout, it's about time. For the, for the first time, it took three chapters for Jonah to do what God asked him to do. And maybe it's taken you three chapters for God to do what he's asked you to do. But he's brought you here and he's bringing you back and he's speaking to your heart if that's where you find yourself. You would think now that Jonah's doing what God told him to do, that something good's going to happen and something good is about to happen. Take a look. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. And here's what, here's what I want to show you right here. God loves cities. And Nineveh was a great city. It was one of the largest in the world at the time. There was 120,000 people. And in chapter 4, God tells Jonah that's why he cares so much. You see, God has a special affection for the nations and for the largest, fastest-growing cities in those nations. Why? Two reasons. Density and diversity density and diversity. There's density in cities, a lot of people in one place. There's diversity, a lot of people from a lot of different places. And here's God's heart. This is the missionary heart of God. We go because he first came. We are sent because he was sent to us. God is the greatest missionary, and God's heart is for many people from as many places to know him. And here's here's what's beautiful. God loved Nineveh, and God loves the Grand Strand. God loves Myrtle Beach. God loves Conway. He loves North Strand. He loves South Strand. He loves inland. He loves the coast. And here's the thing about the Grand Strand. It's full of great cities. It's like, how do you know that? Well, we know it for two reasons. There's social reasons, and there's spiritual reasons why we live in a great city. And let me give you give you four social reasons, why people, this is not just us saying because we live here, why people will move to a city, and that's what makes it great. Number one, there's a university. Where can I get an education while rolling up my jeans and trying to go viral on TikTok? You could totally do that at CCU. Come, do that here. It's like 11,000 students. Density, and one of, if not the most, uh, ethnically diverse student bodies in the state of South Carolina. Density and diversity. God loves CCU. And people love CCU because we keep coming to school here. Next, there's opportunity. It's a great, the, the Grand Strand is a great place to move after college to start a business, to get a job within growing industries like tech, education, healthcare, and hospitality. Not only university or opportunity, but also affordability. Hey, let's clear the air and say what we're all thinking inflation is hurting. It's hard. It's not easy. But it's the hand that we've been dealt. Uh, One one article said that inflation is costing the average household $433 more per month than this time last year. So maybe look at the budget. (laughs) But here's what's interesting and what's so attractive about the Grand Strand. The cost of housing in the Grand Strand is 37% less than the national average. So there's affordability. And then the taxes, the uh, other, other amenities and options, just not going to cost as much as if you move from up north or other places where it's higher. Then there's desi- desirability. It's, it's I think this is almost comical. If you Google the golf capital of the world, guess what comes up? Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Here we are, the golf capital of the world, right beside the beach, endless attractions, flourishing suburbs, great schools, great roads, Great place to raise a family, great place to retire. So we live in a great city, we live in a growing city, it's influential, it's up and coming. One real estate group said that in 10 years, Myrtle Beach is gonna feel more like a family-friendly Miami. And just like God had a heart for Nineveh, God has a heart for the Grand Strand. A lot of people, they like to throw shade at Myrtle Beach and and sling mud at Myrtle Beach. And then, you know, is is this a perfect place? No, it's not a perfect place, this is a broken place. But will you hear Coastway Church speak negatively about our city? No way. God loves this city. Coastway loves this city. My family and I, our commission members, we love this city. We're for this city. And we want Acts 8.8 to be true of our presence here, where it says when Philip was spreading the gospel in Samaria, there was great joy in that city because of the gospel going forth. And we want, if if Coastway were to disappear, we would want Myrtle Beach to miss us. Much joy. And so I gave you the social reasons for why people are moving here. Let me give you two spiritual reasons for why the church must get moving here. Number one, dynamic growth. This past week, U.S. News ranked Myrtle Beach the number one fastest-growing metro area in the United States of America. 1,500 people move here every single month. 375 every single week. 50 new people will move here today. Did you know that the average church size is between 100 and 150? Here's what this tells us. You could plant a new church every single week in the Grand Strand and not keep up with half of the population boom that doesn't even account for the people who are already here. So dynamic growth. Second, spiritual need. This is a conservative estimate, by the way. 75% 75% of those living here and moving here don't know God as Father, the church as family, or Jesus as Lord. For perspective, I want, I want Coastway Church to feel this because this has just been pinning me to the mat with conviction lately. Every day, 11 people die in Horry County. Eight of those 11 die in sin and go to hell. We must be weepers of souls before we will be winners of souls. Hear Charles Spurgeon on this. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Causeway Church, do you see how the Spirit of God has strategically and sovereignly place Coastway Church on the map with the most urgent message and the most important mission ever. And if I could just talk to your heart for a minute, some of you, you, you've been here, you've moved here, and you're off mission. Here's what I want to tell you. God doesn't just want to restore you to himself. He wants to recommission you on his mission and I want to give you four ways that we can stay on mission and get back on mission and live commissioned as a church. Let's see what that looks like. Verse four, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. How do we get back on mission, stay on mission, live on mission? Number one, here's how we must show up and we must speak up. We must show up and we must speak up. So I want you to see this. Jonah had to go into the city to win the city. So Jonah showed up in the city. To be commissioned, you must show up in the lives of others. You must be highly relational. Here's the question I want to ask Coastway Church. Are you showing up in the lives of people close to you but far from God? Are you sharing meals with them? Are you hanging out in the backyard with them? Are you showing up in their text message threads? Are you and your kids being invited to their and their kids' birthday parties? You see, Jonah showed up in the city, and that was where it started. One gym owner said that the hardest machine to operate in a gym is the front door. Think about that. You get in the door, you'll get fit. You get in the lives of people who are far from God, but Close to you, and you pray, Holy Spirit, give me 30 seconds of insane courage to say something true about you. God will hear that prayer, God will bless that prayer. I've prayed that prayer in my own weakness, and He's moved in power. He'll do it, He did it with me, He'll do it with you. But next, Jonah spoke up in the city. Here's what we see we must speak up about the good news and the bad news. Here's what we love. In Jesus, you can overcome. Here's what we hate. Apart from Jesus, you will be overthrown. And that was Jonah's message. It was a message of warning. And the gospel has two sides to it. There are words of welcome and there are words of warning. You are not loving people when you see danger and say nothing. Let me give you a few real-time examples. We understand this physically. Why can we not get this spiritually? Okay, so there was an email that went out to our HOA recently in the neighborhood where I live, and I think that we've got a picture of just how crazy this is, but apparently somebody is feeding the alligators in our neighborhood. There's alligators in the ponds, and there's this uh, email that's going out, and I don't know, like, clue phone, stupid, beware, alligators do not feed. And so what's happening is there's this uh, message, this warning that's going out to everybody in our neighborhood saying, hide your kids, hide your wife, hide your husband, because there's alligators out here. Don't bring your little puppies near the pond and be careful, you know, where you play. And it's like, okay, that's loving. Because if you don't do that, you could get hurt. Or I had had an eventful morning yesterday. I don't know how you woke up, uh, how your Saturday morning was. I woke up to a copperhead. Yeah, on my doorstep, okay? So our neighbors text us and Eleanor and I, we were breaking down boxes and this bad guy was out there ready to meet us. And so they, 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 uh, I get a text from our neighbor, hey, this is out there. And Victoria comes out, and she says, Eleanor, Jeremy, please come inside. I was like, what is going on right here, right now? And then she shows me this picture. She says, it's in our driveway. And I was like, get the shovel. And so I go, and I get the shovel. I've got some redneck in me. I, I, I know what to do when I see a copperhead, all right? All right, you kill that demon. That's what you do. You don't, you don't pet that demon. You don't, say, you don't call animal, animal control. You call reinforcements, or maybe you're the reinforcement, and you put that thing to bed, and it's done. And that copperhead is somewhere in the woods in two. So here, here's what I want you to see right here, is that we understand I, I would warn somebody of danger like that that could hurt me in this life. Why would I not warn somebody of a danger that's going to affect their eternal life? This is an urgent message, an urgent mission, and we have to be warning, not just welcoming people. And I'll admit, we live in a hostile culture. We live in an individualistic culture. There are weird ways to warn, and there are winsome ways to warn. Here's a weird way to warn. All those those weird reshares that people do on Facebook, if you love Jesus, share with 12 people. That's dumb. Stop that. You're scaring us. Seriously. Nobody's ever come to Christ because of that. Or maybe there's like the T-shirt game back in like the 90s and the 2000s. This was bad. This was really bad. It was, it was like uh, it was like one of those Heinz tomato ketchup uh, designs, and it says, "Want to catch up with Jesus?" I'm like, no, I don't I want to punch you in the face and get rid of that shirt. God's still working on me. Amen. Or maybe there's. Have you ever had? Have you ever been a victim of the Ninja Track? Like you'll go like to the urinal or in the bathroom and there'll be like a, a, a track and it'll have like flames on it. A track is basically information about the gospel. And I'm like, I get you want to get it out there. Bad evangelism is better than no evangelism, but man, that's really bad. So those are weird ways. Don't be weird. It's like, by the way, if you're still weird after Jesus, that's not Jesus's fault. Okay. Like you were, you were weird before Jesus. Jesus didn't make you weird, but hey, we can be winsome. We can be winsome. Here's what weird is. You go for the head and you don't have a relationship. That's weird. That's a just a guiding principle. You go for the throat, but you don't have any rapport with them. Here's here's how you can be winsome. You go for the heart in a relationship. I think this is the future of evangelism. It's how we see people far from God but close to us come to Christ through Coastway and be baptized. Here's a few winsome words of warning that you could speak to those who you're in relationship with. Hey, listen. As my neighbor, as my family member, as my friend, I care about you, but I'm concerned for you. And it's because I, I deeply believe that eternity is real and time in this life is short. And the things that I've heard you say as we've had conversations really leads me to believe that Jesus does not really have a place in your life. And you just continue the conversation. You have a barbecue with them that night and you go on laughing and you talk about the office or whatever. Don't be weird. Do be winsome. Or here's another way. It's like, hey, listen, I really value our friendship in this life. And here's what I don't want to happen. I don't want that friendship to end in this life. And then you just look for, you go and you share the gospel or you, you, you put a gospel thread in there or you just say, hey, listen, I'm praying that the God of the Bible, not God, that's too generic, the God of the Bible, that Jesus Christ would make himself unavoidably clear to your heart. I just want you to know that. It's Like, okay, all right. They may or may not respond. Verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed God. So believing God is what we call faith. What is faith? Faith is the eyesight of the soul. It's the ability to see the invisible word based on God, the world based on God's word. You see your sin separating you. You see the cross reconciling you. You see the resurrection renewing you. You see spiritual lostness compelling you. You see biblical justice for the poor, for the oppressed, for the orphan, for the widow, moving you. And see, when you believe God, you do something about it. They call, and that's what they do. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Here's what's awesome. The gospel is for all types of people, rich and poor, young and old, majority, minority, healthy and sick. It's for all people. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The next way that we live commissioned is we must get off our throne. We must get off our throne. Do you know what it takes to get a king off his throne? To get a queen off her throne? You have to realize that you're no longer the greatest person in the room. In Jonah 2.6, this might be the best verse on repentance in the entire Bible. Because it, repentance is not praying a prayer. It's not walking in an aisle. It's not raising your hand. That can play a part in it. Repentance is getting off your throne and returning the throne, and returning the crown back to King Jesus. It belongs to him. And that's what the king does. He got off his throne. There's a, there's another king. I want to be under his authority. And I just want to explain some of this. He took off his robe. That means I've got a new identity. You know, my, my lordship, my kingship is no longer what's going to mark my life. I've come under the life of someone who's greater, and I want people to know about that. And he sends me out as a witness. That's my identity. He was sent so that I could be sent. Next, covered in sackcloth, this is to say I want to show externally what's going on internally, what I feel inside. I am a sinner, and it bothers me. When I ask you this question, does this bother you? And he says it called for a fast. This is the idea of a fast, is to focus on the soul. That's repentance. So what is repentance? It's getting off your throne and focusing on souls. That's what about. You focus on your soul, you focus on the souls of other people. Verse 7, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. All right, so you know God's moving when even the cows are repenting. And I don't even know what this is like, but maybe they're ending that smear campaign with all the chickens, and now they're saying, eat less chicken, something like that. But basically, everybody in Nineveh is being moved, even the livestock. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Number three, how do we live commissioned? We must call for a response. Refusing God, it means turning your back on him and turning your face towards sin. Repenting to God is the opposite. It's that... I'm turning my back on sin, and I'm turning my face to God. That, that is what the heart of repentance is, and it always involves a response. You know repentance is moving a heart when that repentance is moving your hands. You're going somewhere. You're doing something. And so the king tells people to do something about Jonah's message. We must do the same. When was the last time you asked someone, would you like to trust Jesus Christ right now and just shut up and see what they say? I think we just get in the way. You know, you know, we blab and grab at all these horizontal methods and forget that Jonah went and he said, 40 days, you guys are busted. It's like, oh, we better repent. Five words from the Holy Spirit of God is better than 500 words from you and I. And so we got we to remember where the power is. Or maybe... I think the clearest evidence of this is to be proudly and publicly baptized because it was a visible sign of an internal change. That's what baptism is. I go under the waters. I've I've come under the waters of God's judgment, but I've emerged safely because Jesus was plunged under the waters in my place. That's baptism. Or, hey, would you like to come and sit with me at church? Or I was having lunch with one of our commission members this week, and here's what she did. She boldly shared the gospel with our server, and she called her to a response. She said, would you like to read the Gospel of John with me? Like, that's specific. That is clear. And not only would you like to do it, let me go get you a Bible and bring it back to you. And she went and she took that Bible and put it in that server's hand. More of that, heaven down. Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Last way that we live commissioned. We must be clear about the gospel. We must be clear about the gospel. I want you to notice how the king's decree says, who knows, in verse 9. God may turn and relent from his wrath. Do you hear the uncertainty? Do you hear the anxiety? In that statement, how do you know the gospel's being truly preached and truly believed? It's when anxiety becomes assurance. It's when uncertainty becomes clarity. And I think one of the reasons why it was this way is because Jonah only gave C-minus clarity. He, re- he really, we're going to find out in a couple of weeks, he didn't even want them to repent. He wanted, he wanted God to punish them because he was, he was a proud racist. And we'll deal with that in a couple of weeks. But here's what we see, is that people in the Grand Strand are very confused about God, about faith, about salvation, and about Jesus. I was witnessing to one of my neighbors last weekend, and the claim that I keep hearing, the reverb in the room, is all religions are the same. All religions are the same. And I, I asked him, I said, has anybody ever explained to you the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other worldview. And he said, I don't think there is one. I was like, I can give it to you in one word, grace. And he said, I've never heard that before. People must know. But how will they know if we leave them to their confusion? We want people to know for certain that God did turn his wrath away from us because he poured the fullness of that wrath Upon Jesus Christ. Romans 5 9 says, Since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from his wrath. See, restoration is the result of worship. Here's what I want you to see getting back on mission is the result of worship. My words won't work unless the Holy Spirit of God lets you know they're his words that this is his word, that this is his work, and that he's worthy of worship. Worship, what is it? It's what you give weight to. It's what you assign worth to. And unless we worship, these words are empty, and we walk away unmoved. You see, there's only one right way to read the book of Jonah, and that's for us to see that Jesus is in Jonah and, and be moved to worship, that Jesus is the greater Jonah For example, Jonah preached a few words from God. Jesus came as the living word of God. Jonah saw a king get off his throne to repent. Jesus is the king of kings who left his throne so we might repent. Jonah gave people 40 days. Jesus has given us thousands of years. He's patient. Jonah saw one nation bow. Jesus is the God before whom every knee and every nation will bow. Jonah was sent to Nineveh. Jesus has sent us to the Grand Strand. So here's what I want to invite us to do as a church. I want to invite us to pray that what happened in Nineveh would happen in the Grand Strand. That we would see corporate renewal starting with us, that we would see citywide renewal multiplying through us. And even as I even as I say this, I just I kind of wonder, just to be vulnerable. I wonder if this will happen. Like I, I really wonder, God, would you really break through to my neighbor? God, would you really break through uh, to that person who moved here for reasons entirely other than you? And here's, here's what I know. I don't know, I don't know what God's going to do. I know what God wants to do. I know how we participate in it. And that's what I'm calling you up to, to be a part of right now. Here's, here's what renewal is. Renewal is God multiplying and magnifying what He normally does in someone surrendered to Him. So, what does He normally do in someone? He moves us to pray. He moves us to confess. He moves us to repent. He moves us to prioritize the gospel. He moves us to apologize. He moves us to pursue people who can do nothing for us. He's always convicting, He's always calling, He's always compelling. So what do we do? We pray. We pray.